Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. England, Zimbabwe, India, Philly, suburbia. Where you come from, your native people, and we all have native people, influences everything. The teams you cheer for, how you cheer, how you eat, what you eat, where you sleep, what you think's okay, what you think's not okay, how you go to the bathroom. You have not lived until you've experienced a Turkish toilet. It influences everything we do. It all comes in this big package deal that we call, I don't know, sometimes culture, sometimes family, sometimes where I come from, sometimes different words for them. And it, it's, it's like, if you would imagine with me and allow my silly illustration here, it's like this giant backpack that all of us are given. And all of us went from birth. You're, you're given this backpack and, and forced to wear it. And, and people are going to start shoving things in. This is what you eat. This is what success is. This is what you're supposed to do. Here's your script for life. Here's what you're going to do. And every single one of us, every one of us, whether we know it or not, we are wearing one of these right now. Right now, all of us carry one of these with us. And this backpack, this invisible but very real backpack, has a whole set of expectations and assumptions and values that you carry with you everywhere you go in life. Now the Greeks, they had a word for this. We translate it citizenship. It's not just citizenship the way we would think about. We usually think about, you know, what kind of passport do you carry. But it is this, this pack that you carry everywhere in your life. It's your place in the universe. It's where you belong. It's, it's, it's how you, you see the world. It's the set of assumptions and the expectations you take with you. It's how you cheer. Do you say ole, ole, ole when you cheer? Or do you curse like a good Phillies Eagles fan? <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was gratuitous. I, I apologize. In the midst of today's individualistic society, it's a little hard to wrap our minds around how important this term and this idea was to the ancient Greeks. But if you, uh, if you read Socrates, right? Socrates, at the end of his life, he, he was forced. He had a decision to make. Will you accept exile, lose your citizenship, be, be torn away from everything you've known, be torn out of the city, the people, the culture, the values that you have, or will you face death? What did he choose? He said, give me the hemlock. I'll drink it up. I would rather die than lose my citizenship. Do you understand? This was so important to them that this is going to shape how the Philippians view the world. And in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it starts with the word therefore, which is not, I mean, it's the one you just ignore. But this word is going to be really important because this therefore, for all you grammar nerds, is a resumptive therefore, meaning he's resuming what he just said in the last sentence, which started in chapter 1, verse 27. Therefore, citizenship. Let's talk about citizenship. Let's talk about what it means as Christians to live as citizens. Not as citizens of this world, but as citizens of heaven. When we come to this passage, he's going to hold up this idea of citizenship. And he's going to say, that's it. You know, all that stuff you obsess over about what it means to be a Roman citizen or be a citizen of this or this place or this place, whether it's English or Zimbabwe or, or Indian or Philly. All that stuff, like that idea, all that whole package that you carry with and 
flavors everything you do in life. That's what it's like to be a Christ follower. You are a citizen of heaven. It tells you where you truly belong. It defines your personal allegiances. It's going to give you a new king and a new law to obey. It's going to color the way you see your neighbors, your work, your family, your house, everything. It's going to decide how you eat and how you sleep and how you use the bathroom. It's going to leave nothing in your life untouched. So let's watch this. Chapter 1, uh, or chapter 2, starting in verse 1, he's going to give us then four things, four characteristics, just as each of these men gave us four characteristics of their native people. He's going to give us four things that every single Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, you are now a citizen of heaven. And every single one of us should be able to get up here just like these men did and say, these things are part of my experience, part of what it means for me to be a Christian. And he says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So, have you ever sinned? And I'm, I'm not talking like, oops, a uh, little accident sin. I'm talking like, you sinned where like, like I have to live with the consequences of this. Like there's going to leave scars on my soul. Like there's, there's no like glossing over what I just did. I sinned. Have you ever sinned like that? And then in that moment, in that place of shame and guilt, realize, right now, God loves me. Like, in that place, realize that right now, my sin and shame is placed upon Jesus Christ, and he did not deserve it. And right now, in that place, his righteousness is placed upon me, and I do not deserve it. Have you ever experienced that? Have you had, ever had any encouragement from being united with Christ? Like, have, you, have you ever experienced his love, any comfort from his love? Have you ever had any common sharing in the Spirit? Like, have you ever had that experience where something comes out of you? There's this joy or this peace that you can't explain. It didn't come from me. If any tenderness and compassion. This word tenderness, we crossed this a few weeks ago. It's literally the, the, the entrails. Like, ha- have you ever heard about the love of Christ, Christ dying for you, and it just turns your stomach into knots? Have, have you ever seen something that's unjust, injustice in the world, and it makes you want to puke. Have you ever had a friend of yours openly reject Jesus Christ after they hear about his love, and you just bawl your eyes out? And Paul's answer is, of course you have. You're a citizen of heaven. Like, if you know Jesus Christ, these are yours. These, this is not a test. Those ifs are not like, oh, if it's possible. It's like, yes, this is, these are truisms about every single person who knows Jesus Christ personally. They can say, in some measure, this is my testimony. I mean, th- th- this is a question like, do Brits drink tea? Of course they do. You know, do Cam- Cambodians eat dogs? They sure do. Do Italians speak with their hands? Mamma mia. Do Christians know the encouragement and comfort and fellowship and tenderness of Jesus Christ? Of course they do. Like this is our common experience. These are things that shape all of us. These are proof. This is just our our experiential proof that yes, I am a citizen of heaven. And Paul's point of these four things is to say, if this is your experience, and of course it is, 
man, then you need to think like it. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and mind. He's going to say, basically, restate this in verse 5. Where he says, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Mind, like-minded, mind, mindset. This is, this is the Greek word phreneo. Now, this is not a very common word. If you, if you go through uh, the New Testament, it's, it's used. I mean, it's not an obscure word, but it's not a very common word. When you go through the New Testament, you'll find it used once, in like Colossians, once in Galatians, once in 1 Corinthians. One, in all of the teachings of Jesus, it's used once. It, two different passages, but the exact same quote. When you come to the book of Philippians, he uses it ten times. Paul seems to think that it's really, 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 really important that the Philippian church not only know that they are established as citizens of heaven, that they have this position, this, this relationship with God, that they are citizens, but that they actually think like citizens. He repeats it so often that it's, um, it's going to be borderline obscene. Like, you might miss this if you just read through your English text, because this word doesn't really fit into one English word. It's translated feelings, point of view, attitude, mind, mindset, concern, regard. But when you actually read through this in the Greek, it, Paul will say, you need to phreneo, 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 ten times in four chapters. The Apostle Paul seems to think that it's very, very crucial that we not only have the promises of God with us, that we are citizens of heaven, but we begin to think like citizens of heaven. You see that long before the Philippians were citizens of heaven, they were citizens of Rome. And their bags were already filled with a bunch of stuff. And a lot of that stuff not of God. Like they came into this relationship, this, this relationship with God, this, this Christian life, carrying a bunch of baggage already. Okay, so Acts chapter 16, uh, we heard the story about how the flipping church started. And we met in Acts chapter 16, a little demon-possessed slave girl. You know, instantly... When he said, in the name of Jesus Christ, be gone. You know, you're set free. Instantly, that little girl was, the demon left her. Instantly, she could be forgiven, justified, righteous. Instantly made a citizen of heaven. Instantly be made perfectly righteous in the sight of God. Instantly, a believer filled with the Spirit. All the promises of God are given to her. But tell me, after you have that passed, how long do you think it took that little girl to look in the mirror and see herself as a glorious child of God and not a worthless slave girl. Okay, so the jailer in Acts chapter 16, he is a man who is so faithful, so duty-bound to Caesar that when he thinks he's failed Rome, that the, 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 the prisoners have escaped, what does he do? He's, he's ready to kill himself. Because he'd rather die than fail Caesar. Now he meets Jesus. He and his whole household, they come, they place their faith in Christ. But tell me, when you've measured your whole life in terms of success as whether Caesar is pleased or not, how long does it take you to start thinking about your life in terms of whether Jesus is pleased or not? Okay, let's update this a little. Women, 
you who have a past, you who weren't born Christians, when you look in the mirror, what do you see? Men, you who've had your whole life people telling you what success is based on money and power and control and strength. Now you serve a man named Jesus who does not value any of that. How hard is it to start thinking like that in those terms? It's hard. You see, the truth is, is when Jesus, when you accept Jesus, all of that is taken care of. It's given to you as a gift. You are a citizen. But you're carrying a bunch of baggage with you. And we need to freneo and start thinking like Christ. Being of like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, having one mind. This is freneo, freneo. He's, this is a package deal. This is one sandwich. I mean, there's, there's four lines here, but there's really one thought. This is about freneo, about how you think, about your mind, about how you feel about the world. It's, 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 a, it's a one style of thinking that is sandwiched with expressed in love and one spirit. So, so what he's saying here is that Christians, all who follow Christ, all of us, we share certain things. I mean, the same way everyone who comes from England has a really smart accent, right? Everyone from Korea has perfect skin. I mean, there, there are certain gen- generalities you can say about different native peoples. And us as Christians, we share a way of thinking, of loving, of doing life together. And what we share fundamentally is the mind of Christ. That he comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. And as we mature, we learn to see the world through his eyes. We learn to love the things he loves, hate the things he hates, have his attitude, his values, his mindset, his freneo. So a few weeks ago, Jenny and I are standing in the kitchen, chatting, and I'm telling her how crazy all of you are. Kind of. Sort of, not really. Kind of. I say, I just keep running into this thing that I just feel is just absolutely destroying relationships and families and people all the time. It's, it's what psychologists call the fundamental attribution error. It's the idea that when, when you look at someone else other than you and they do something, you attribute their actions to some deep evil core like character issue, fundamental flaw within them. So you're driving down the road and you, you cut someone off. You didn't mean to, but you did. And then you're like, oh, sorry. But when you look at yourself, you say, oh, that was just a simple accident. I didn't mean to. You're driving down the road. Someone else cuts you off. That's a horrible person. They don't deserve ever to be on the road ever. They're fundamentally evil. They tried to do that. How dare they? So you're shoveling your snow this morning, right? And a little bit of snow goes in front of your neighbor. That's an accident. Didn't even think about it. You walk inside. You look out the window and you see your neighbor out there and he's shoveling. Shovels a couple big shovels right onto your spot. Well, why does he do that? Because he's evil. Okay, that's a silly example. But in marriages, in family relationships, this happens all the time. And I was sharing how, how there's these couples. There's a husband and a wife. And I sit down with the, the husband and I say, you know, this is, this is a good man. This is a man who loves Jesus. Flawed, to be sure. 
But a man who loves Jesus and is trying hard. And here's a good woman and a woman who loves Jesus. And a flawed woman to be sure, but a woman who loves Jesus and is trying hard. But when the two of them get together, he he sees something she does. And he immediately assumes that she is hateful and spiteful and evil. And she sees something he does and she immediately assumes that he's the spawn of Hitler. And it's destroying us. And Jenny came up with this great word for this. She said, it's these mind games that we keep playing. Phreneo in Greek. And we started talking about how if we don't control how we start viewing things, specifically other people, if we don't start controlling and fighting our thoughts and entering into those mind games, that Satan's going to use that to tear apart our families, to tear apart our church, to tear us apart, to destroy our lives. And then she told me about the blue skillet. So we're standing there in the kitchen. And this was actually in the dish drain at the time. And she said, you know what, Paul? There's a lot of days where I will get up and I will clean the kitchen pristine. And then you, you won't have anything scheduled for lunch. So you'll stop in thinking you're being all loving. And you'll stop in just to say hi and eat some lunch. And you'll fix yourself some lunch. And you always get up. The blue skillet. And then you'll use that blue skillet. You'll give us kisses like we're so happy to see you. And then you'll leave my pristine kitchen dirty. And that blue skillet, you'll leave it dirty in my, in my sink. And she said, there's a mind game that happens right then. That as soon as you leave, I look at that blue skillet and I think, Paul is just abusing me. Paul doesn't care about me. Paul hates me. Paul is so rude. And she said, I have to enter into that and I have to force myself to take that stinking blue skillet and wash it with love. And the whole time I'm washing it, I'm praying, God, help me to love my husband. God, help me to see my husband as a good man who loves me and really does care about me and is not trying to maliciously destroy my life. And I said, there, why not? And at the end of that conversation, I decided I will always wash my blue skillet before I leave. (laughs) But this is it. This is the thinking of a citizen of heaven. That you enter into the mind game. That when those thoughts come up, when you see other people and you see how they're doing other things and you you start interpreting those, that you fight those thoughts to save our families. Imagine if my wife didn't enter into that battle. Do you know how how disruptive that would be? Do you know that that could destroy our marriage? It's destroying our families, friends. It's destroying our church. It's destroying our nation. Brineo. You are citizens of heaven, now think like one. Watch this, verse 3, the Apostle Paul is now going to give us, he's going to unfold a picture of what it looks like to think like a, a, a citizen of heaven. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I want you to see these are, these are heart issues, motivations that we have to sort through so that we can think like citizens of heaven. The word selfish ambition here literally translates, is a literal translation of the word mercenary. You know what a mercenary is? It's someone who's paid to fight. So I've been doing a lot of reading with um, World War II. 
And you can see why they call this like this, this, this great act, the greatest generation, right? This great battle that was taking place. And you, you watch things like the Band of Brothers, and you see these great heroic acts going on of selflessness and sacrifice. And these people, in, in the, the highest possible sense, men and women lay down their lives for their nation, their God, their brothers and sisters. It is the highest expression I can think of of citizenship. Now imagine if among your band of brothers, there were some mercenaries. Some people who didn't care who won the war, who didn't care about your God, your nation, or your family, but they were just there for a paycheck. Do you think you would trust that person? Do you think you would trust your life to that person or want to fight with that person? What would that do to morale? Well, that'd be terrible. The Apostle Paul says, don't do that. They're taking the highest possible sacrifice, the highest possible vision of what it means to be a citizen, and they're making it this base desire about what I can get out of it. Don't do that. Do you understand? We are called into citizenship, this high, high calling, this great sacrifice. Don't you dare make it about what you can get out of it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit is the idea of empty glory. It's chasing after glory that is in the end empty. So it's chasing after a job, money, relationship. Something that you think can give you eternity. Can make you immortal. Can make you lasting. Can give you true value. And only to find there's nothing there. And you keep going for it, and it keeps giving you nothing. And the more you chase it, the emptier you become. It's drinking salt water, right? The more you drink, the thirstier you get, the quicker you die. That's what empty glory is. That's what vain conceit is. And the Apostle Paul says, don't do that. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Value others. The person who cut you off person who didn't wash their skillet, the person sitting next to you, your neighbor who shoveled their snow in your drive today. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, be, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's it. Have the mindset of Jesus. It literally is this simple. Let's read this together. Value others above yourselves. One more. Value others above yourselves. It's so simple. So simple. Value the eternal souls of other people more than your own comfort. When Jesus sees others, he sees someone worth giving up everything for, in fact, worth dying for. So the question is, is what do you see when you see others? It's almost as if when you become a Christian, the Apostle Paul wants us to take this whole concept of citizenship, the baggage that you've carried into this, and he says, you know, you can keep the bag, but we need to go through your stuff. Like if you want to think like a citizen of heaven. If you want to take this with you, where we're going, we need to take everything out piece by piece, one by one. How you talk, 
where you sleep, how you shop, how you go to the bathroom, what you eat, what you cheer for, what you're really passionate about, all those things, all those expectations of life, what you deserve, where you're headed, what your life really means, how you define success, all the things you've shoved into that pack, and we need to pull it out one by one, and we need to just hold it up and let Jesus look at it. It's like, oh, wait a second. Where'd this copy of Fifty Shades of Grey come from? Wait a minute. You think spending your money like this is a good idea? Wait a minute. You think this vacation is a good idea? Wait a minute. You think this house is a good idea? Wait a minute. You know, all of these things are possible. They can fit in the bag. But come on, we need to talk about this. We need to think like citizens of heaven, not citizens of America or Zimbabwe or England or wherever you're from. That, that this time in the scope of eternity, you are, a, you are a, an alien right now, right? A resident alien. You're going to live here for a boop. And then you're going to live in eternity with Christ. And you need to start living your citizenship right now for eternity. You know, you can look through this and think that the Apostle Paul is going to be really mean. You think that Jesus is going to be really mean, right? It sounds like, oh no, he's going to want to look through all my stuff, how I'm spending my money. He's going to look through my relationships. And, and it just feels like Jesus is going to be condemning, right? Like he's going to come all judgmental and tell me, oh, you can't do that and you can't do that. But let me tell you a little secret. If Jesus wanted to condemn you, he wouldn't have died for you. He would have just let you go to hell. He doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to save you. And you don't understand all these things that we're clinging to that we think are who we are as a person might not be best in the best interest of us. That Jesus doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to see you live. He wants to see you free. He wants what the Apostle Paul wants, which is he wants to complete your joy. And he knows that until you can let go of those things, until you can start thinking for now like a citizen of heaven, you will never experience the joy of the life that he intended for you. So here's the mindset of Christ. The mindset that's supposed to define us, that's supposed to shape everything that we do, supposed to color how we view everything in life. It, it, it couldn't be put more simply than this. Value others above yourselves. So before we eat or sleep or buy a house or go on vacation or work or mow the lawn or take a shower or do anything, we're supposed to ask, am I seeing this the way Jesus would see it? Am I valuing the eternal souls of others more than my own comfort? I want you to just stop for just one second and take a a catalog of your life. Think through your work and think through your home and think through the stuff that you own. Am I valuing the eternal souls of others more than my own comfort? It's horribly convicting. What does this look like realistically? You know, there's a family in our church that has five daughters and a female dog. You'll never guess who who I'm talking about. Five dollars. It's just mind-blowing. You know, you know how expensive girls are? Do you know how high maintenance girls are? I have just one little one. That was exhausting. And the girls have finally gotten to the age where they started leaving the house. And you know what this crazy couple did? They decided 
to remodel their upstairs so that they could have extra bedrooms and bring in more young women. I mean, do you understand, right when they're at the point where they can start having more money to spend on themselves, right when they're at the point where they can start driving a nicer car and having more me time, right when they're at that point where they can start living lives for themselves, what do they do? They remodel their upstairs so that they can bring in more headaches and heartaches, so that they can spend more money on other little girls. You know, right now in our church, we have multiple families who either have or are in the process of adoption. I want you to think about this cost-benefit analysis of this. Let's make sense of this. You, you pay a fortune. You're going to be forced to do tons of paperwork through this horribly emotionally draining process. You're going to personally be raked through the coals to see if you measure up. And then the great reward of going through this horrific, expensive process is now that you get a very, very difficult job parenting some child. Why would anyone do that? You know, within our own church, we have people who feed the poor at St. Peter's in town, who work with at-risk moms in Norristown, who go serve at Good Samaritan Shelter, who on and on, who serve sacrificially and selflessly serve junior high and senior high students, which just is mind-blowing right there, act of sacrifice. Week after week after week, and the question is, Why? Why would anyone do that? How does that make sense? What about my comfort? What about my life? What about the things that I could experience and do? Why in the world would they ruin their comfortable lives? It's because they met Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That he had everything, he gave up everything for us. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the great irony, right? That Jesus gives up all of his own comfort, even dies on a cross for us. And God says through that, he gets life. He gets exalted. He gets eternity. Do you understand? The, the Apostle Paul says, value others more than your own comfort. You know why? So that your joy can be complete. Like this is the Christian worldview. This is the Christian way of thinking. That we die so we get life. That we give up our own comfort so we get joy. That we count up the cost and we find it's worth it in the end. Band's going to close with a song. And I want you to take this moment to really think through, am I seeking my own comfort? Or do I value the eternal souls of others more? I want you to specifically pull three things out of this bag that all of you carried with you today. I want you to pull out your finances. I want you to pull out your family. If you're married, I want you to pull out your spouse in particular. And I want you to pull out your neighbors. And I want you to hold those up to this high, high standard of the, the freneo, the mindset of Jesus Christ that says, I value 
other people more than I value my own comfort. And I want you to look at those and say, do I value? Do these things show this about me? Do I have that common characteristic that all Christians should have? You are, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. Now think like one. 